Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And, and I want to say thank you, church family, for uh, providing uh, for us a sabbatical. Uh, it's very kind of you. You guys have uh, been taking care of us for the last 10 years. My, my first day officially was April 1st, 2013, which is April Fool's Day. And so uh, I'm always reminded of just how patient you have been with, uh, with me and, and uh, the shortcomings uh, therein and, and uh, the... the, the yeah, the things I, I'm not that, uh, that I'm learning on, on the job. And so you guys have been so kind to us and our family and so welcoming. And, and I don't say it enough, but we really love you, church family. Um, we really do. And, and we're so grateful that we could be uh, a part of this family. Uh, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the uh, book of Luke. And we are in chapter 16 and verse 14 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18 is our passage today, and that passage can be found on page 875 if you are using a church Bible, page 875, Luke chapter 16 and verse 14. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship that we can gather so freely as a church family. I thank you for this church family. And uh, would, you, would you bless us, Lord? Would you bring us close to you? And, and as we come to your word, um, we ask that you would do a mighty work within each of us. Uh, so often with texts like these, we can often uh, just try and bend them to fit our lives and what we want. But would you give us the grace necessary to actually bend our lives and our wants to your will uh, as revealed in your word uh, more and more uh, for our own joy and for your glory? Would you shine great light on Jesus Christ this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the core beliefs of the Christian faith is that the glory to come is greater than the glory of the now. And what we currently see and experience is not really ultimate, but what we cannot yet see truly is. And there's perhaps a nowhere that will keep us most honest about whether we really believe these things to be true or not, than how we handle uh, our possessions, our finances, how we spend, save, set benchmarks and goals in matters pertaining to money and to the coming kingdom. And to illustrate this, Jesus has just given to us in the passage previous a parable really about a, a shady scoundrel who upon hearing of his imminent firing, he actually uses this shrewd wisdom, understanding his limited time, sacrificing money that is not his to keep, to maximize his happiness post-job, by making the most of his opportunity now before that job comes to an end. And as believers, we know similarly that our time is limited and the money currently under our control is not ours to keep. And we ought to make the most of this passing opportunity in this very short life to maximize our happiness in the next one by spending for a kingdom which is to come rather than wasting it on a kingdom that is guaranteed to fail us one day. The only question is, do we really believe what we believe? Jesus' point is that for many who claim to be his followers, uh, we actually act and live like these things are not true at all. But if we do believe, we are going to be shrewd about what we have. And so important is this test to the genuineness of our faith that the final statement that Jesus makes in verse 13 to close out the parable is this, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. How we handle our possessions is essentially a worship issue. 
who it is or what it is that we really put our faith and trust in. Now, I don't think Jesus' purpose in this chapter where he does speak about money throughout it, and even in the following passage with another parable about a rich man and a poor man. I don't think Jesus' purpose here is merely wanting us to shake our fist at materialism or, or, or a matter of creating guilt within our own consciousness. Uh, I think this is supposed to be an honest assessment of what we love, what we worship, what we really believe, because we can't believe in two conflicting things at the same time. This is the context for our passage this morning where we see some pushback against these very things that Jesus is saying. And, and we find Jesus pushing back that pushback to uncover a hollow religion and superficial worship. And so Jesus is continuing to deconstruct some false religion and instruct us on true religion. We begin in verse 14 and we read there. The Pharisees who were lover of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It is uh, possible to feel justified and, and to be looked at highly, uh, spiritually speaking, and yet have our own hearts far from God. And here we have this real life example of how people have gone wrong in religion and they don't even know it. The Pharisees, their existence proves to us how possible it is to know so much up here and yet understand so little right here. And Jesus is trying to prove this to the Pharisees who love money and think they're good spiritually. He's appealing to those who justify themselves that they actually need to repent of their idolatry. And, and here we have uh, the most religious people within the first century who know their Bibles best, who have devoted themselves to religion and memorizing long texts and who have a reputation for these long and intricate prayers that match their long and intricate robes that they wear to make a distinction between themselves and all the people who are not up to their level. These are the most revered religious people the first century had to offer. And, and it's easy for us to kind of point the finger at the Pharisees because hindsight's twenty twenty. But this is the conservative group of the day who place a high priority on the word of God and who hold fast to sound doctrine in a way that many of their contemporaries did not. And so if there were any a group who could theoretically love both God and money at the same time, it would be this exact group. But here we find that they love money and they ridicule Jesus because we cannot love both at the same time. Jesus has stated this as a matter of fact, and the Pharisees here prove it. And we see what this, what this looks like. For, for it is that, that with anything we treasure and, and coddle and hold close to our hearts, uh, we're defensive over our sins and idols like we are of our own babies. Hence the ridicule. I can love both, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. I can do both, Jesus. I can hold both things close to uh, my heart. And the Pharisees here, they don't contradict Jesus. They can't. Uh, they're not going to enter into debate with them. They won't because they've done that in the past and it hasn't really worked out for them. And so they ridicule him. Uh, what is this poor carpenter who hangs out with tax collectors and sinners of the day? What does he know about money and spirituality? I mean, look at his splintered hands, tattered clothes, his no place to lay his head. His best friends are a bunch of leather-necked fishermen who reek of fish. Is there any real credibility to this Jesus of Nazareth when he speaks about money? He didn't even have any money. I mean, you can imagine the kind of ridicule that they would throw at him. Never mind that if Jesus really wanted to be rich, he could have. I mean, think about it. He really could have been one of the most wealthiest men of the day if that were one of his main goals in life. Open up a restaurant. All you can eat, fish and chips. 
I mean, he'd be rich. Open up a hospital, guaranteed medical success. People will pay a lot of money for guaranteed healing. But isn't it actually more compelling that someone who could accumulate great wealth quite easily but chooses not to, doesn't he actually have more credibility when preaching about wealth and God than the one who is slavishly in love with money and can't even see the Son of God before their faces? But it is easier to point the finger than to come to terms with that which is in our hearts. And this is a common human response whenever sin is pointed out, whenever that idolatry has been identified. Idolatry meaning the things we trust in and love more than we trust in and love God. That's, that's idolatry. It's worship. Whenever that has been identified, we are either going to own it and repent of it, turning away from it, or we're going to deny it and often heavily criticize the person who accuses me of it and then maintain my righteousness through it. It's not as bad and it's not as bleak as you say that it is. I am fine. And Jesus knows that this is a common human response, which is why in verse 15, he presses in even more. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You know, there's this uh, weird uh, comfort that we can have when we are in sin and heavily deep in idolatry. There's a, a certain ease we can experience when we try and love money and convince ourselves that we can love God at the same time, that we will look to the left and to the right of us rather than look upward to him, that as long as I can find other people who are religious and spiritual and yet have also devoted the majority of their efforts to making more and more so that it could be spent more and more on things like elevating comfort and higher standards of living, fancier everythings, chaining myself effectively to this world where this passing life occupies my mind and my heart more than the life which is to come. This little kingdom more than the next one. As long as we can find others who are religious and spiritual and yet have similarly devoted the majority of their efforts to worldliness, we can actually derive quite a bit of comfort and security and safety that we are spiritually all good because the people I surround myself with are doing the exact same thing. And then we coddle this love that Jesus declares is impossible to reconcile with a love for God. In effect, living like Jesus is lying. And, and Jesus' pressing accusation is designed to uncover this very phenomenon. You are those who justify yourselves before men, before people. This is the normal tendency of the human heart who wants to sin comfortably and keep that idol close and not cast it away to find people who agree with me and live like me. And as long as you guys are not in your heads in approval, then I must be good. But the follow-up statement removes that sense of safety for Jesus declares, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There is this directly uh, antithetical relationship between what people think is a well-lived life and what God thinks is a well-lived life. People uh, exalt that which God, and not just doesn't like or disapproves of, but here what God finds to be an abomination, which being devoted to wealth more so than to God's own will is an abomination. And here we are reminded, and shockingly so, that, that we ought not always to trust what people think highly of. 
I mean, even more so now with social media, even Yelp, blah, blah, blah. We're constantly gauging our life choices, even the restaurants we go to, by public opinion, almost more than anything else, when it really is only one opinion which ultimately matters. God knows our hearts. We can't fool him when it comes to what we really worship. God knows what's inside of us, what we really love, what we really trust in, what we really think is going to provide the life we've always wanted, whether it's he or whether it is something else. And when it is that something else, uh, that can be an abomination to him, which is purposely not light language, but it is designed to be this awakening language so that we can be alerted to it and turn away from it and turn back to him. Now, in today's day and age, the statement, God knows my heart, is more often used as a justification for sinful behavior than it is for arresting us or awakening us. Yes, I live and love this world, but God knows my heart. I'm dating someone who doesn't give a rip about Jesus, but you know, God knows my heart. More and more, I'm going to direct my family's time away from Christ and away from his church, but God knows my heart. I mean, nowadays it seems that God knowing our hearts can so easily be used as a justification to do the very things he doesn't really want us to do, to excuse the way we're actually living. But when here Jesus proclaims God knows our hearts, it's not that God knows them, so therefore I can be comfortable loving everything but him. No, it's God knows our hearts. He knows exactly what it is we truly love and live for, whether we say long prayers and wear long robes and do religious stuff or not. God can see through all of it, and he knows what it is we worship and what it is we obey. And this is not meant to be a comforting statement to these Pharisees who are claiming, I can love money and love God at the same time. It's meant to be revealing to them that you can't, and therefore you are a lot further from God than you think you are. You know, sometimes... um, this confrontational language that we hear from Jesus like this, it sounds uh, mean, and, and Jesus seems to use a lot of it in Luke. Uh, but here it is, I think, that we actually are getting a peek into Jesus' own heart of, of, of kindness as well. He, he's really confronting them to appeal to them uh, by spending time and effort with them, to uncover that which is within so that they might actually turn and repent. I mean, look at this portrait that Luke makes of our Savior. He's speaking to the very ones who are going to be responsible for putting him on the cross. And even now, he's reasoning with them so that they may somehow see their sin and perhaps turn from it and live. Jesus is showing to them carefully, tactfully, but very upfrontly their love of money and not God as they look around for people's approval more than they care about God's as they overvalue their opinions and their wealth and undervalue the Lord himself who is actually sitting right across the conversation from them and they can't even see it. Uh, This is an act of beckoning grace. If they would only but listen. And, and, And for us, whether it's a world, money, whatever, the lesson for us is that if we begin to love something to the point where it displaces God, uh, that becomes an idol. And at that point, we should not trust our hearts. Uh, We shouldn't even really trust our peers for that matter if they're living the same. For if we're not in love with Jesus in our hearts, we will be more in love with something else right where it counts. And by the Spirit, may we be convicted to come back to him and turn away from anything and everything that would keep us from him. We cannot love two things at the same time. We can't. 
Jesus uncovers this hollowness of that kind of religion. And the Pharisees are the perfect example of it. No matter how externally, spiritually they appear to be, their hearts are really far from God. Uh, but we see Jesus continue his appeal even more in verse 16 as he brings up the law that they supposedly love and judge themselves by. And we read there, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You know, a hollow and the superficial religion, it really uses the word of God and the law improperly. We've got to understand the right use and the wrong use of the law. And the Pharisees here, they've been using it wrongly the whole entire time. They were using it to justify themselves when the law actually condemns themselves. They were using it to be self-righteous when they should have been using it to be repentant of their lack of righteousness. Now, it seems like this is an interesting time for Jesus to be bringing up the Old Testament law and the prophets and John the Baptist, and he could have spent a lot more than just two verses if his primary concern were to give us a more exhaustive explanation of the relationship that we Christians should have with the Old Testament law and the unfolding uh, redemptive narrative that exists throughout the Bible. If you don't know what that means, that's entirely okay right now. But I, I think this comment is made in relation to the Pharisees and how they got their religion all wrong by using the word of God and the law wrong more than it is anything else. For they in their hearts again, they love something as an idol and ridicule the son of God and they still think they're good. How? I mean, they're reading the Bible all day. How did they get this all wrong? How did they not know this was happening? How do we make sure that we don't do this and arrive in the same place? Back in Luke 10, 27, Jesus gives a statement there to what the gist of the law is. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so at the very heart of the law, there's always been this relational aspect to it. First to God as supreme and then to others with a love that looks quite a bit of how we love and take care of ourselves. This is at the very heart of the law. And those two things are massively difficult. And we fall massively short, which is a tough pill to swallow when we're trying to think about getting right with God. And what the Pharisees did was reduce that law, not to its heart, but to a bunch of rules, like keeping the Sabbath holy at its heart. That's lastingly important as a principle to devote a time to rest and to worship God in dedication to him. But for them, let's make a bunch of check marks at what you can and cannot do. How many steps can you take before it's work? How do you cook and wash your hands? And yada, yada, yada. And whether it is in Judaism or in your own Christianity, we can reduce our religion to this external checklist that we have made our religion something entirely foreign to what God designed it to be. Go to church, check. Give my offering, check. Uh, don't say the F word, check. Don't get drunk on the weekends and so on and so forth. Check, check, check. And we can go down that list. I did it all and I'm free to do what I really want to do with my life because I have accomplished the law externally and I am feeling pretty righteous. The Pharisees had this list of rules and laws on top of rules and laws almost entirely external as a way to gauge where we rank in the spiritual rankings. But the worship of Yahweh had been reduced to this honeydew list while their hearts were far from him. The prophets had always said the same thing throughout the generations, that your offerings, your sacrifices, everything that you do and keep outwardly, they're nothing because your hearts are far from him. It's only this shell of a religion. 
And then John the Baptist comes, and what does he preach? He doesn't preach rules and laws, but he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is his baptism? Luke 3, 3, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And why were the Pharisees so offended by him? Because they didn't think that they needed repentance. We've been checking all these external boxes. They weren't looking for forgiveness. They were looking for applause. But if they understood the art of the law, and they understood that not even one dot of it will pass away, they would understand that this law doesn't justify them but it actually condemns them. And then they would desire forgiveness because they would know, I definitely do not deserve applause. And that was exactly the scene out in the wilderness. I mean, John the Baptist, his ministry wasn't in a strategic place. He wasn't in the city like some church strategists say. You got to plant a church in the city. John is in the boonies. And John, he's not all that trendy. He wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. That's disgusting. And his message was not uh, really all that soft and welcoming. Back in Luke 3, again, verse 7, he tells the crowd, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I mean, that's going straight for the neck. But what happens by the Spirit when people hear that they are not righteous and they know that the law condemns them and they are convicted that they've been living the wrong way, we find streams of people going out into that wilderness Every age group, every demographic. Matthew's account tells us all the country of Judea, all Jerusalem, all the region about the Jordan to hear a preacher, not applaud them, but condemn them and to call them to repentance and to turn from their sinful ways. And what are they doing as they run out into the boonies? It says they were confessing their sins out loud. Why? Because they wanted forgiveness of them. And they drop everything and travel miles by foot to be baptized in John's baptism. I mean, that effort to grab at this grace, to seize that forgiveness, is what I think Jesus means here when he says that the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces their way into it. That with all our hearts, this is what I need most. And I will force my way in by confessing that I don't deserve to be in. And by admitting that we fall woefully short, and in repentance that we don't want to live the way we've been living, but we want to live solely and only unto him. And it is that when we hear the good news preached, we are either going to ridicule it or we're going to be broken by it and with all our minds and hearts and with all our might force our way into it or think it's all a sham. Uh, the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, and it's going to be culminated when he returns. But now is a time for invitation and opportunity, and really uh, every other decision in your life is minor by comparison. But this is that which the Pharisees refuse to do. They don't recognize the time, nor do they identify the person right in front of their faces, nor do they see accurately their own hearts, for they are blinded by their own inflated views of themselves. And this has been the common problem throughout the centuries that People like to justify themselves rather than to admit guilt that we always do that from Adam and Eve. It's the woman you gave me, God. It's the serpent. It's his fault, not mine. And then we try and cover ourselves with our own makings, trying to conceal sin rather than to expose it, trying to deny the issue rather than to admit it. 
constantly trying to make ourselves look better than we actually are, whether it's through spiritual busyness and superficial morality and yada, yada, and blah, blah, blah. And it's the same thing that has plagued humanity. Keepers of the law that they think they are, we are prone to self-righteousness, that we haven't done anything wrong, but God knows our hearts. And with an obvious love for the Pharisees, for money, which is idolatry, here they ridicule the Son of God who is going to die for the sins of the world upon a cross, absorbing the wrath which is due to us. Why? Because Jesus Christ loves sinners. He loves the sinful world. And he wants to bring us back to himself even when we are the ones who have run so far from him. And victoriously rising from the grave, Jesus defeats the power of both sin and death and shows proof positive that my offering has been accepted on the Christian's behalf. You know, friends, if you're new here, the gospel's premise is, is, is really we can never be saved by the goodness of our own lives. The gospel, good news, that's what the word gospel means. The good news is that Jesus Christ has come to save us who have no goodness that we can brag about. The Pharisees here, again, they ridicule him who is going to accomplish what we never could. They scoff at the one who is appealing to them right now, even as he's doing it so personally and intimately because they don't think they have a problem and they think the law has their back when it really points a finger at them and not one jot, not one tittle, not one dot will pass away, but it will incriminate them eternally. And they don't think so. And therefore, they will not attempt to force their way in with any kind of real faith, with precious in, with real earnestness, through confession, repentance, and grabbing at grace. And I wonder if you uh, understand the gospel truly and, and who we are and who Christ is and what we ought to worship and what we often do not. I wonder if you want to cast away everything and just worship the only true God. And before we uh, jump ahead, let me read you one quote about the Christian use of the law from J.C. Ryle, which may help to fill this in. He says this, Let us settle in our minds that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. It is intended to show us God's holiness and our sinfulness, to convince us of sin, and to lead us to Christ, to show us how to live after we have come to Christ, and to teach us what to follow and what to avoid. He who so uses a law will find it a true friend to his soul. The established Christian will always say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And so we have here Jesus again systematically appealing to the Pharisees who love money, want to climb that ladder more than anything else, want to be well off, and to think that that life is consistent with loving God. We have Jesus systematically trying to show them that they need repentance and they need grace and that the law doesn't justify them but actually condemns them if they would only just see this, that they might turn to him. But sadly it is that they remain standing in ridicule against him. Verse 18, we continue, and this is a very loaded last verse. And we read there, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why does Jesus bring up divorce and remarriage sandwiched between two parables about money? And this has given preachers and commentators fits for a long time trying to figure it out. I think if Jesus is going to confront 
uh, money-loving Pharisees who get religion wrong because theirs is not about the heart. I think if Jesus is going to talk about money to bring conviction, he will also speak about our most intimate relationships to do the same. There's a stewardship over money. There's a stewardship over marriage as well. If the way we use our money tells us if we're living for this kingdom or for the next one and what we really believe. If our religion is just only external with our hearts far from them, I think the way we view our closest relationships will do exactly the same. And if the Pharisees can reduce the word of God, the law and the prophets to this external checklist to cover up inward idolatry, they can do the same thing with the very word to find loopholes to do the very things God hates and finds an abomination. God has a very high view of marriage. He, he does. God designed it. It was two becoming one flesh, which means they are to never separate. It's so much so that you leave the family you're raised in because this relationship takes priority. So highly does God think about marriage that Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 speaks of marriage as a pointer and an illustration of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church who is called his bride. That somehow our husband-wife relationship lets the watching world know and understand something about the gospel. It is an arena for love and for forgiveness which doesn't deny the reality of sin and difficulty and drama but displaying a love and a grace that is greater than all of it because marriage exists for God's glory and not our own, just like money is to be spent for God's glory and not our own. But the Pharisees in living for their own glory to grab out more money, surprise, surprise, they did the very same thing with marriage and divorce as well. According to one rabbi, expert of law, if a man has a wife who burned his dinner, you could divorce her. Another rabbi, another expert of the law, if a man found a woman more attractive than his current wife, he could divorce her. I mean, what are they doing? They know God hates divorce, but they know people are going to get divorced anyway. And so they come up with these exceptions, these loopholes to make divorce permissible, legal, beagle. And again, rather than the word of God at its heart, convicting us of sin and sending us to God for the grace necessary to love and forgive our spouses, they make another religious checklist for when you can leave and still be all good. And when your heart is not into what God's heart is into. Divorce is not God's plan for marriage almost ever. And I know we can turn to Matthew 5, 32 and 19, 9 and look at the exception of infidelity and sexual immorality. Uh, but even that is given after Jesus pleads that God had made the two into one flesh, no longer two, but one. We can run to 1 Corinthians 7, 14 and 15 that when an unbeliever refuses to leave with their believing spouse, you let that person leave. That doesn't mean that Christians should marry unbelievers. This is two unbelievers getting married. One of them becomes Christian. But if the unbeliever leaves, you can't force them to stay. You let them leave. If they want to stay, you stay in it too, wholehearted. But here's the thing. We can often have this tendency to contemplate and study all the exceptions and all the rules rather than the very hard and purpose of marriage in the first place. And with the Pharisees, we can love the exceptions more than we love marriage itself. We can go, well, what does abandonment mean? Can I stretch that out so I can fit my situation into it? Well, what does infidelity mean? Can I stretch that out so I can leave this person I don't even really like that much anymore? I mean, I got a bad draw. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, my life is short. Can't waste time with this person. They're not meeting me halfway. I am too good to be married to someone this bad. 
Give me something, Bible, to give me an exit. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus Christ loved his bride the same way? Only to this point, church, and if you cross it, I'm out of here. Can you imagine if his grace and his love had a limit where he spent most of his time looking for that loophole? And as we live in our own difficulties and relationships, it helps us, doesn't it, to return to the gospel and understand all the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. It actually enables us not to look at your spouse, but to look at him, to dwell on his love for us. It strengthens us to extend grace and forgiveness when we swim in his grace and forgiveness, that we can actually begin to love sinners like Jesus did. And unlike the Pharisees who couldn't stand that the tax collectors are coming to him and he doesn't have a problem with them. It's because we actually begin to understand grace. Now, I think there is a reality in certain situations outlined in the Word of God where divorce is permissible. Uh, talk to a pastor or an elder about it, but, but these permissible exceptions are not God's design, but as a result of human wickedness that has marred what God has called good. We're against abuse and all of these things. Now, this single verse is not to be exhaustive uh, of all things pertaining to marriage and divorce. Again, the context is such that Jesus is appealing to the Pharisees to wake them up. And they are not all that like they think they are, so that they might see in their own hearts sin, idolatry, turn to God and repent and force their way in because they feel the gravity of their iniquity. And if you've been divorced already, uh, my extended family has divorced in it. My own parents have been through it, uh, even having fights with my own wife and understanding the temptation uh, people are drawn to. Uh, I think it's okay to feel remorse about it and guilt and then move forward from it in repentance. Now, you can live your life unto his glory without being bogged down by it. There is no scarlet A upon you when you've come to Jesus Christ, who, as far as the east is from the west, removes our transgressions from us. But it doesn't mean we glorify it or we make it easier to accomplish. And for us, as this text hangs in this kind of uncomfortable situation, uh, as Jesus really is, is trying to single out the Pharisees for making adultery easy with their interpretation of the law, making their idolatry of money easy with their interpretation of the law, it's meant to feel uncomfortable because that feeling is supposed to bring us to a place of reflection. I think it's really designed for us who aren't Pharisees that we would honestly take a look at how we handle our money because that never lies about what we really believe. If we're living for this, we're living for that. And we look at how we handle our closest relationships, namely our marriages, because that doesn't lie about what we really believe, whether it's this or that. These things, let it hang because that's going to let you know where you're really at so that we might come to an end of ourselves and put ourselves instead wholly into his hands and to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love one another even as we love ourselves. Would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for this text. And um, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, you know our sin better than we know it. You know our shortcomings more intimately than we know them. And yet you, out of love, send your son uh, for us. I pray, God, that we would um, never try and be better than we are, that we'd be comfortable being humble and broken and, and clinging to you, that, that, that all we are is what we have in Jesus. I, I pray for um, our church, our church family. Uh, I pray for the way we use our money, that you would... Uh, give us the grace necessary to really believe uh, what your word says. I pray for the marriages uh, in our church family that, that you would give us the grace we need 
to really make our marriages a place where people might come to understand something about Jesus and the church. I pray, God, for the grace we need, Lord, and, and we know that you uh, are the Father of all good things. Please, please give us the grace to live joyfully unto your glory rather than to our own. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.